Hello, welcome to a new episode of Overmorrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming on our podcast an illustrious guest, curator Lucia Pietroiusti, founder of the General Ecology Project at the Serpentine Gallery in London and curator of the Lithuanian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale in 2019, among other things. Lucia, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So after our last episode on Ernest Junger, Lucia will help us to expand the shelves of our imaginary library with a conversation on alternative realities, metaphors, non-human perspectives, and more. And let me begin with something that we discussed in the last episode on Junger. Junger talked about a method to deal with reality, which he called the stereoscopic gaze. The idea is that of being able to see at the same time the factual scientific dimension of the world and the non-factual mythological, even ineffable dimension of reality. And also to hold both these views equally true at the same time. Does this approach resound with the approach that you have in your work? So hi, and again, thank you so much for this invitation. I thank you also so much for uh, scheduling me so near such a controversial figure <laughs> politically. <laughs> I do have to say, though, that the episode was amazing and that it led me to so many reflections, which I hope come up today. But um, to answer your question, so I'm quite blind. I don't see very well. And if I don't wear my glasses, I tend to... Uh, there's also something else called prosopagnosia, which is a difficulty to recognize faces. But what I notice is that if I take my glasses off and I walk in the street, instead of not recognizing people I know, I find myself... Uh, recognizing people I don't know. And so I say a lot, say hi to a lot of strangers uh, in the street. And I kind of feel like that approach uh, has a connection with some kind of methodologies that I find really helpful in the curatorial sort of field or environment. Um, when I was talking about this with my wonderful colleague, Ben Vickers, who you also had on the show with Sarah Shin, he uh, cited at me a passage from the architect Keller Easterlings uh, book, uh, uh, Medium Design, which I'm just going to read to you now because I have been quoting it since pretty much with every lecture I ever give. So she writes, where nothing is new and nothing is right, there are no dramatic manifestos, but maybe there is a chance to rehearse a habit of mind that has been eclipsed. You are already able to detect, as if with half-closed eyes, which is the important part, a world at a different focal length. Rather than only declarations, right answers, objects, and determinations, you can detect and manipulate the medium or matrix in which they are suspended and in which they change over time. So what I find really fascinating about this quote and is, first of all, it uh, sort of resounds uh, and relates to my physical embodied experience of seeing, but also the fact that when you're thinking about issues uh, across kind of art and how it permeates other disciplines and kind of exists within the medium or matrix in which we live, like the contemporary world, how do we feel in the present? Um, this, this capacity that the curatorial, uh, I suppose, amateurism, the fact that we're not experts in anything much, and neither are artists, right? But we become fascinated with things. And maybe that surface fascination is enough to be able to sense connections and synchronicities and simultaneities between different modes of thinking, different kind of uh, modes of worlding, different worldviews and so on. And how do you bring them together in a kind of cosmological approach? 
So one of those examples of a, of a sort of, I suppose what I, what I would describe as cosmological approach is the series that uh, Philippe Ramos and I have been running for quite a long time on uh, more than human consciousness uh, and I suppose intelligence or a more than human world. Uh, we called it the shape of a circle in the mind of a fish after this, these beautiful designs that this tiny, tiny fish makes at the bottom of the ocean. It's in like the Blue Planet, you can see these images. And uh, in the Blue Planet, David Attenborough des describes them as like probably mating rituals. So this fish, sort of the male puffer fish makes these gorgeous things and then the female puffer fish is supposed to be really like seduced by them. But when we started to look at these images and we started to look at the videos of these fish that are making this these shapes, we realized that, and I wish I could do it on radio, but I can't, that they're kind of like shuffling. There's a kind of, the way in which they move the sand about is through something that looks a lot like a kind of a shuffle or a dance or something like this. And so it led us to think, like if we, um, tr if we sort of shift our uh, perspective and try this impossible horizon of imagining from a fish's point of view, what the shape of that circle might, how it might appear in the mind of that fish, then it might appear as a movement as a set of movement coordinates or as a kind of a dance. And so that initial insight led us, of course, to the title, but also to the series and kind of research project that is really trying to kind of look at anthropocentric assumptions, not necessarily anthropocentrism per se, but the assumptions that go with anthropocentrism and then unpicks them, essentially, like reveals them to all be myth, one after the other after the other. So I suppose... What, what then emerges in the festivals that we organize around, around these issues is if you bring together disciplines that really don't relate to each other, from theologians to biologists to um, uh, artists, of course, and, and many more scientists, you find yourself, rather than give an argument like you would through a book or a conference, you find yourself actually throwing some kinds of cosmological coordinates, which create hopefully create three-dimensional objects of mind, objects of thought in the audience's mind. And presumably those objects are all different. So it's like, how do you read the sky, right? And through, and you look at the stars and all of these different constellations kind of begin to emerge and they have as much to do with your own subjectivity as they do with the stars that are actually in the sky. I suppose that's like, I suppose that would be part two of uh, a kind of methodology that is, um, I wouldn't say stereoscopic, but definitely purposefully amateuristic. There's something else that I often cite, um, which is a description that the Italian anthropologist, anthropologist uh, Elio Zagami gives of the sort of logic that underholds some of the belief systems on the Sicilian island of Alicudi, which has the most incredible mythology, as I'm sure you are incredibly familiar with, but it has uh, some of the most compelling mythology uh, and that that mythology is so unique to that specific island. So um, the island of Alicudi, I owe this, in fact, the, the first person who spoke to me about uh, this island, aside from just knowing it from being from Italy, but uh, was the artist Aishani, who has been working on a project um, for, on Alicudi for, for some time. And uh, historians have been tracking the ways in which uh, food scarcity met with the outbreaks of things like the ergot fungus, which is, of course, the fungus that is at the basis of the compound that then made LSD, 
the ergot fun- fungus had these like year years long outbreaks over the course of the centuries in the island of Alicudi. So presumably, it is it has been suggested that these myths emerged from a kind of general hallucinations or hallucina- hallucination period that the whole of the island would have been undergoing via um, consuming the bread made from the rye infected with the ergot fungus. So these figures that emerge in Alicudi, the Mayare, are these f- female figures that paint themselves into this kind of ointment and then are able to fly to Palermo and bring back goods and riches and food and all the things that indeed were missing in the island. So it's, it's at the same time a kind of ecological sensitivity, a kind of social sensitivity and some kind of uh, psychedelic revelry that is included in in this. And I guess, so Zagami speaks of the logic that underholds some of these. He's, he says they're analogical rather than logical logic. So th- there's something about that notion that I think is also really helpful when working as a curator or working in the arts in general, this notion of um, I suppose like belief leaps or associative connections that undo things like cause and consequence or the need of cause and consequence or, or something like this. And that brings you, can bring you to a space in your mind, which isn't an extraordinary space. It's the same space as dream space. It's the same space as, you know, contemplative or when we're lost in thoughts, it could be the same. Spaces in your mind that allow for these associative moments to disrupt the logic by which we experience everyday life in, I suppose, urban, global north centers, right? Most of the time. Moving to a more, let's say, material, concrete realm, perhaps. Junger was a biologist and an accomplished entomologist. And these things informed his literary production as well. Also, when he was talking about things that apparently had nothing to do with nature. Also, you work with things that are usually associated with nature. Uh, ecology and ecologies. And I would like to understand a bit better what you mean when you talk about ecology. In what sense it might contribute also to our understanding of reality beyond what is usually simply defined as nature? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think in the broadest possible sense, I think of ecology as um, the the means by which we can understand or make sense of relationship at a distance or mutual effects at a distance. So anything that is apparently at a distance from one another, but that in some way responds to one another would be existing within an ecological kind of paradigm or relationship. Um, The weather and nature, I suppose the quote unquote nature, the natural world, exist by that logic very clearly. We know that very clearly. There is a relationship between, um, I suppose, I mean, in the simplest terms, the emissions of CO2 and the changes in the weather, the irregularity of the weather uh, today. Those things are actually scientifically incredibly hard to pin down and prove. Um, Much more hard are they scientifically to prove than they are, uh, I suppose, culturally to understand, which is one of the reasons why I find the role of culture to be so important in this. But um, to cut a long story short, I began to be uh, involved in the environmental field on the back of a festival, the Extinction Marathon, that my uh, uh, artistic director at the Serpentine and 
the artist Gustav Metzger and I and also other colleagues uh, co-curated in 2014. And that was really on the back of Gustav Metzger's exhortation that we should be dedicating kind of the cultural realm and activities to, I suppose, fighting the extinction of species. Gustav uh, was an artist who was really deeply concerned with extinction. He arrived in uh, Britain at the age of six as part of the kinder transport, uh, escaping the Nazi regime. So the notion of the, the sort of looming specter of extinction was really heavy in his consciousness. And out of that emerged a really deep ecological consciousness, which is one of the earliest in the kind of 20th century modern art, although by no means uh, earliest in art in general. I mean, I would argue that all art is about agriculture and the weather in some form or another, but that's a, uh, probably a different story. Um, on the back of that, I remember very clearly asking uh, or proposing to Hans Ulrich that we should just dedicate a festival to extinction every year until, you know, with no end date. And a few years later, what developed was this project, General Ecology, which was a way of really thinking about this very expanded notion of the ecological uh, and a kind of dedication to the environmental specifically by looking at them in relation. So we were doing a lot of work on systems in terms of how institutions work within themselves, how they work in relation to one another. So we were thinking about the ecology of those things, the ecology of the art industry, for example, whilst at the same time working to support artists and artworks and pr practitioners from other disciplines work that went towards or that pointed towards a sense of purpose in relation to the environment, whether it be developing uh, a kind of common paradigm around more than human consciousness or or uh, they might be dedicated to particular issues around uh, climate justice or around uh, pollution or water scarcity or indeed climate change as a whole and so on. So the project really developed holding all these ecologies kind of in mind. And one of the things that's emerging now with the most recent work that um, that I'm becoming involved with has really to do with how um, thinking beyond the silos of social justice versus environmental balance or environmental efforts brings us to an understanding of something like climate justice that is able to detect those mediums or matrix, ecological mediums or matrix that hold the whole thing in place. So, so for example, the relationship between empire and environmental destruction, the relationship between uh, the genocide of indigenous peoples and the loss of particular uh, notions of regenerative agriculture and things like this. So so how all these things actually are, in the end connect with one another, but are experienced both in the oppression, uh, both in the moment of oppression and in the moment of liberation actually are experienced as separate silos. And so the ecological view is a messy, is like ultimately connected with messiness and mushiness and complexity and kind of the, the the sort of I'm making gestures that have to do with like I don't know like molding bread or you know kneading bread or something like this so it's it's they really connect to an attempt to try and make sense of an actual reality and an actual presence present in which things are much more complex and much more conf confused and entangled with one another than we then translate them in, you know, politics, action, theory, discourse, philosophy, whatever. 
Something else that is especially messy and complex is technology. Junger was a great writer on technology in his own time. It was the 20th century and technology was essentially industrial. He was talking about the existential transformations brought about by technology in the human species. And today, technology is expanding somewhere else, way beyond the industrial, more towards the combination between the digital and the mental, the human mind and the digital worlds. And I know that you're also working on the question of artificial intelligences. Can you tell us more? What's your take on this issue? So I have lots of um, collaborators and friends who are much more erudite than I am in relation to what we refer to as artificial intelligence in, let's say, common language, um, namely digital advanced technology algorithms and so on. Um, and those views, I think, have been incredibly important and influential for me uh, when I think, for example, of the work that Hito Starl has been doing on uh, Deep Mind, uh, sorry, Deep Dream, and in which there's a beautiful text in Ignota's Atlas of Anomalous AI in which Hito proposes that the shape in which artificial intelligence is today is really more a reflection of the context within which it is produced, namely extractive racial capitalism, than it is an actual then it is the only possible manifestation of that kind of advanced technology. In relation to that, I've been working with James Bridal uh, for quite a long time on a section of the Helsinki Festival that will be taking place this year, which has to do with specifically this, artificial intelligence and its relationship to forms of power, but also in kind of dialogue with the notion of more than human consciousness or more than human intelligences. In a strange kind of paradoxical way, we seem to tend to be able to, and when I say we, I probably mean some kind of hegemonic Western culture, but it seems to be able, seem, seems to tend to be able to approach the emergence of a kind of consciousness in a robot or in a sort of speech algorithm or something like language algorithm or something like this with much great, as consciousness, with much greater ease than we would be able to imagine this plant having some form of consciousness. And yet, you know, and yet, general artificial intelligence is not, in fact, in existence today. Plants have properties, things, behaviors uh, that you could, if you, if you thought a little bit like I do, you could describe as humor, as love, or as desire, or as uh, willingness, trickiness, all kinds of things that I'd be accused by a scientist of being anthropomorphic. I actually think that anthropomorphism is a wonderful thing um, in the sense that anthropomorphism, rather than mold the properties of more than human beings to human characteristics, is actually a device by which we admit that human characteristics may not be solely human. Now, the reason why we're incapable of thinking that this plant has humor is probably not because the plant doesn't have it, but because, as we always do, we've shaped the, the form of humor in our own image, like the form of God in our own image and so on. And so the, the passage from artificial intelligence to more than human intelligence is something that I'm completely fascinated with and that exists in lots of disciplines. I remember the theologian Simon Kotova saying to Philippa and I once 
that the reason why she studied theology is that it was one of the very few academic disciplines in which you could be speaking about the consciousness of a non-human being and be taken seriously. And I think there's something like really deep in that insight. There's something that really allows us to expand the notion of what intelligence or consciousness can be or is. And out of that, then we can return to the notion of advanced technology or artificial intelligence and really ask it really deep questions like James Bridle is doing in his latest book, which are questions like, well, what if we built a technology that was not emerging from extractive racial capitalism, but was actually emerging out of some kind of more than human environmental consciousness or some sort of reparative uh, position? What would that technology look like? You know, what present would we be inhabiting? What future could we be pointing to as well? So I guess it's in this kind of medium or matrix that that uh, the, the work I've been doing probably situates itself roughly, but again, with no expertise whatsoever. <laughs> you were saying at the beginning that I scheduled you next to a very controversial author, author which I did. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but in fact, Junger talks about many of the same things to a certain extent that you discuss, um, from a radical idea about metaphors to non-human consciousnesses, mythologies. And in much of the 20th century, the, the only people that were touching these issues were, I'm afraid to say, usually associated with the extreme right of the political spectrum. It's only recently that people on a different political spectrum, a part of the political spectrum, such as myself and yourself, uh, are touching these issues. Now, this is not yet uh, completely accepted. Uh, it is still a, a, a matter of big debate and uh, suspicion. How do you think it's possible to touch upon this strange, um, not fully materialistic, not uh, suspicious objects without being immediately associated to, with people such as the black soul of Alexander Dugin, for example, in Russia? So, I mean, this is a really important question and one that probably we need to all, you know, uh, masticate and digest uh, very consciously as we exist within environmental fields. And I would probably add to that uh, not only environmental consciousness or eco ecological consciousness, but also some kinds of rebirths of spirituality, the important, the increasingly important roles that at least in culture, things like alchemy or theosophy or astrology play today. Now, of course, it's easy to go. All of those things existed at the time that immediately preceded and then bolstered fascist regimes and therefore the cause and consequence relationship of those things is that an ecological consciousness leads to some kind of fascism or that in some way there is a sort of unbreakable link between those two. But the thing that the episodes that you uh, did on Younger made me realize uh, problematizes that direct link in a way that I found personally very helpful. Now, one of the things that I've been sort of playing with is uh, whether we could, as a kind of, I suppose, game of the mind, develop some kind of perspectivism, historical perspectivism. So perspectivism in the sense that the anthropologist Eduardo, Eduardo Viveros de Castro proposes, but related to our experience of history and whether that can actually, and it's all just games of the imagination because 
mostly because of the fact that histories weren't written by the victors and therefore you know there's a very incomplete there's an enormous amount of kind of gaps and missing and ghosts and incompletions in that history but what if we tried to kind of imagine what things not what things ended up being in hindsight but what things felt like at the time now obviously your entire podcast series is enormously compelling and not only because it's incredibly beautifully made and incredibly erudite, but it's also because it speaks to a feeling of the now, now, which is really powerful, this feeling of the end of, a kind of end of history or an end of times or an end of a world and so on. Whether you celebrate it or you fear it or you don't quite know what to make of it, there's definitely a sort of an ending feeling. Then it's never really quite the end, but you know, we're getting closer with environmental collapse to an actual end to end. Um, but so I'm wondering, and we see these, you know, ecological consciousness uh, movements and spiritual emergences happening now. So it sort of led me to wonder what if the sort of 20s, 30s manifested a kind of end times feeling as well. And in that sense, what if the emergence of ecological consciousness or some kind of spiritual uh, interest or, or buy-in to the spiritual realm were not only kind of bolsters to the hegemonic regimes, but actually ways of coping with that feeling? Like some, that's, some, that's a much more intimate way of thinking about it, right? It's, it's a way of dealing with anxiety. It's a way of dealing with with death, with fi finishing something. It's a way of thinking about letting go. I mean, there's nothing more environmental than thinking about, you know, death and composting as like our our avenue, our destiny. And, the, and conversely, there's nothing more, uh, there's nothing more implicated with death and ending than the notion of the environment or an ecology like things have to end in order for uh, for that energy and those materials to transform into something else and of course the tarot card of death is always about transformation so death and transformation exist in relation to one another so that's all to say what if it was a way of coping and then just as the conversation around net zero is being co-opted by bp just as the conversation around um carbon offsetting or uh, carbon neutrality of any kind is being co-opted by governments that at the same time behind that statement still continue to fund fossil fuel companies, still continue to have violent policings of borders, still continue to imprison and detain non-criminal peoples at its borders, still continue to enact what is essentially fascist practices the world over. What if those discourses were actually, as they are today, actually a co-option of a kind of popular, like of a, of a sense of the now. That starts to invite us to think about those relationships that you mentioned between like far right and environmentalism, for example, in a completely different light. Now, the one thing that I want to not forget to mention is of course there is a strong relationship between a kind of ecological consciousness that completely disregards human life and human suffering and the right that exists today as well. I mean, we sp spoke about right-wing hippies off mic before. It's important in that movement of coming to consciousness with ecology and with the environment to also reconcile 
the fact that the effects, for example, of climate breakdown are so unequally distributed and unequally the, and the products of such unequal power relations. And therefore, this the sort of insistence on a kind of justice, climate justice based paradigm, which is something that my co-director of this new organization, Radical Ecology, uh, Ashish Gadiali and I are sort of really working on, is one of the methods through which you can really try to hold a very human sense of history, as Dipesh Chakravarti talks about, and a very planetary sense of, I suppose, time or unfolding or interconnection, but without letting any of those things go. And I, I mean, for me, it resolves the kind of ethics of the whole thing quite simply, uh, in a way, without the need to resorting to all this historical perspectivism stuff that I don't know if it makes any sense, but you know. You've been talking about endings, and we often talk about the end of a world in this podcast. But let's talk about the beginning, and in particular, children. In the case of Junger, well, it's a tragic story, of course, because his firstborn was sent to a penal battalion as a punishment for Junger's involvement in the plot to kill Hitler and was killed in Carrara on the marble cliffs. So the question of parenting doesn't really appear much in Junger's work. But I know that you, like me, are the parent of a young child almost the same age as also my own son. And I was wondering if the experience of parenting influences your understanding of your work, but in general also the understanding of cultural work, and how you think that children could be involved in contemporary art production, uh, cultural, cultural production in general, not just as the audience, but perhaps also as participants. So one of the things I forgot to mention when I was talking about the birth of general ecology is that it very much emerged as the result of an experience of parenting, of first of pregnancy, actually, and then of parenting that were radically different from one another. Pregnancy was amazing. Parenting at the beginning was fraught with quite a lot of anxiety and difficulties. Um, that led me to a number of realizations. So the pregnancy realization had to do with the divine feminine, with the fact that monotheistic male, white bearded Santa Claus looking gods are actually a kind of a con or some kind of uh, mystification to hide the fact that actually there is something incredibly everyday about the creation of life and that that creation potential is embedded within a body of a, I mean, I don't want to essentialize gender, but within a, a sort of body, a pregnant body. Um, so that was the kind of first time that the penny dropped. I was like, this whole thing, you know, we build societies, fight wars on the back of this story that doesn't hold at all. And we have the experience of this every damn day. The second one was actually relating to a small infant. My way of responding to the anxiety that I felt as a new mother was to I suppose, hyper-intellectualize the experience. And so it led me to think about all these things, like uh, how language was such a secondary, in time, uh, mode of communication. If you begin to relate to your infant, you don't need for them to speak to you or for you to be able to speak to them or for them to understand you, to know that there's a need, that there's a pain, that there's a fear, that there's all kinds of things. There's physical closeness, which is incredibly important, and then all kinds of other clues, non-verbal, non-linguistic, non-symbolic. And so within that experience, I started to think about the radically untranslatable and how 
that experience itself could in some way be a teacher towards ways that we could relate to more than human beings. So, you know, in the same way as children have ways of expressing their dissatisfaction, plants have enormous ways of dis expressing their dissatisfaction, you know, about lights and water and so on. And they, and they do so in such ways that people that are much, much better at me than at taking care of plants can read really clearly and so on. And then the third thought was a kind of dislodging of human time. Many parents will tell you that their, many parents involved in environmental movements will tell you that their environmental consciousness was born with the birth of their children. And usually they go, because what world am I handing to my children and the next generation and so on. But I think something more deep is at play. I think when you start to relate to a being that you love that much, fully aware of the fact that if everything plays out in the way that it should, they outlive you. Therefore, that you are loving them in a time that doesn't belong to the scale of your life, then that slight dislodging from one length of a life to a length of one and a half lives or two lives is, again, just the first step in the possibility that with your mind internally as a kind of exercise, you could dislodge the notion of human time and start to think about redwoods time or geological time and so on. It's just a question. Scale holds things in place, but just the tiniest little bit of uncertainty or um, destabilization of that scale allows in the mind possibilities that far exceed, you know, the credit that we give our brain usually which is like, we can't conceive of this. It's too big, it's too long, it's too something. Well, it's not quite true. You can conceive of your child's life after your own death. And so, you know, it's just another couple of steps beyond that point, right? As per the question around what role could they play uh, in cultural production, the, the thing that comes to mind is how much learning emerged later on as my son became a bit older when I realized that the world that he inhabits is a world that I, um, in a certain sense, hold in place around him. And that children have this incredible capability of sort of every day creating the world anew or experiencing the world anew or something like this. And that therefore those parameters that you put around them determine their experience. So the shift there, the kind of mental leap from that is, to a certain extent, maybe we all kind of wake up in the morning, have assumptions about where you cross the road and where power lies and, you know, how what what you're going to eat and what a bank account is and how much you need the internet and things like this. We and every day we reenact, we reperform that world that we experienced the day before. And so we are in a certain sense, sort of partaking in shaping more than an interpreting or a shaping more than a, a, a sort of passive experience of it. Now, I'm obviously not, um, I'm under no illusion that power is distributed in such a way that that is not true for many. Uh, that, you know, the, the circumstances of the world are far more, like crush so many people and livelihoods and communities and so on. But I just think this thing from kids, this this capacity to sort of imagine and everything that is possible is completely fundamental to the way that culture 
could or at its best can. Um, yeah, so, somehow like dislodged the assumed or dislodged, dislodged the the intractable. The other thing that I find really cool about kids, by the way, is that I read in a book that um, their brains are wired, have as many connections as a mind, an adult mind on psychedelics. So when my five-year-old asks me, what is God? And I go, well, you know, like God is kind of everywhere and they made the universe, but they're also in plants and it's sort of you and it's sort of me and it's, it's time that passes and God is definitely love and gravity and all these things. He's the only person that doesn't look at me like I'm nuts. And then, you know, five minutes later just goes, God is everything. No problem. You know, that, that, how do you hold on to that? A small biographical note, I have to say that also the project of this podcast came from my experience of parenthood. The, the perception of myself as the past of my son's future um, gave me the idea that really it is possible to speak about the future from the perspective of a world that is already dead to a certain extent. But remaining on the podcast itself, as you know, we are here cre- trying to create a library about worlds that end worlds that are fragile, but also worlds that are as yet to be born and worlds that are beginning. We are creating an imaginary library, but next to it, let's imagine with the, with the possibility that is given by imagining it, that we can create also a gallery. What would you recommend that we include in our imaginary gallery next to our library? And also, would you contribute any books to our imaginary library? So the practice that comes to mind today, because I've just been recently writing about it, is uh, the work of Tabitha Rosaire. She's a French and French Guyanese Dutch artist who is currently based in French Guyana um, and is setting up a center, kind of a regenerative cacao farm, center for Kundalini Yoga, center for for the arts and sciences of the body, the earth and the sky. There's an observatory in it as well. And if it sounds like a kind of retreat for the privileged, it is absolutely not that. Tabitha's work since the very beginning was invested in the ways in which technology reproduced, emerged from and also reproduced the kinds of power dynamic of racism and racial capitalism and empire. And so in many of her previous works, she uh, gave these extremely sort of precise and lucid critiques of how that power got deployed through digital means and the internet and infrastructure. So she's always had a kind of investment in the notion of advanced technology. But then the way that I feel Tabitha understands advanced technology is really interesting because she takes, she completely like perspectivizes or decenters the description of advanced technology that we would have in the kind of, I suppose, the globalized Northwest of the world and thinks about those advanced non-Western, quote-unquote, alternative advanced technologies around knowledge of uh, the sky, the the sort of cosmologies, uh, uh, cosmologies and the ways that they influence agriculture, the way that they influence um, kind of social organizations and daily lives, and uh, does this like fantastic kind of uh, shift 
if we understand advanced technology as being not only the product of this particular power dynamic, this particular society, then all of those knowledges, all of those accretions of practices and knowledges that exist the world around and that Tabitha is going through such lengths to kind of archive and record and transmit and learn as well, are advanced technologies themselves. And so again, we return to the same question as before. What kind of world, what kind of planet, what kind of environment, what kind of ecologies would emerge out of an understanding of advanced technologies that decenters kind of the racial capitalist extractive center, right? Um, so her work in terms of making new worlds as opposed to sensing into the end of the current one has a hope and a, I want to say it has a hope and a depth that I think is really remarkable for for the contemporary. I thought of lots of books to bring to Overmorrow's library and then in in to honor one of the people that Tabitha interviewed uh, in one of her films, Mamelle's Ancestral, in which she travels to these kind of astronomical, like very ancient stone circles and astronomical centers in the Senegambia region. And she interviews uh, the guides and scientists and uh, researchers that are working on these stone circles. And one of them uh, problematizes the question of the written word or the, the primacy of the written. What I would like to bring to Overmorrow's library is rather the oral traditions, the world round of creation myths, of catastrophe, cat catastrophe myths, all of those things that aren't, that exist within the ghostly I suppose, other side of that library, all of those things that are transmitted through time and that in fact endure far longer than paper, certainly far longer than digital technology. I'm reminded of the research that was done by semioticians and all kinds of uh, experts around how do you signal the presence of nuclear uh, waste for, it, for those signals to be not only existing in 10,000 years time, but also interpretable in 10,000 years time. And it's funny how all these different kind of devices and sculptures and strange kind of uh, marks on the land and written records and so on were hypothesized. And then a group of semioticians started to talk about, well, actually, oral traditions are the things that tend to endure the longest over deep time. And so that might, in fact, be our library in the end, you know, when everything else burns. That's perfect. We will add it to a discotheque next to our library. And we will work on that discotheque in a later episode with uh, musician Nicolas Jar. But for now, Lucia, a million thanks for coming on our podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And dear listeners, thank you for staying with us today. And I hope you will join us again next time for the next episode of Overmorrow's Library, still here at the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye. <laughs>